0: Almost always every year, without fail, forget when St. Patrick's Day is. It's just kind of a, is it the third Wednesday of March or the third Tuesday of the first full moon after the, something, it's not, something like that? It's always the 17th, isn't it? Okay, I always forget that. It's just weird. I'm usually pretty good with dates, but that one is always hard for me. So it's tomorrow. So happy St. I'm not Irish, you can maybe tell that. Not a big deal for me. But um, if it is to you, I hope you have a great day tomorrow, I guess. Um, well, my name's Chris. Welcome to High the Church. If it's your first time here. Glad you guys are here. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are right in the middle of a sermon series right now in the book of Matthew, and I'll catch some of you guys up to speed if you are new-ish to the church or if today's your first day here in a second, but understand in general that Matthew was the first book of the New Testament, and we've been learning a lot about Christ and the nature of salvation and uh, if you're newer to the Bible, know too that uh, the Bible is one book and one storyline, made, made up of a number of books written over centuries of time by a number of people, but with one great capital A author, God himself, directing the pens of the authors throughout history to basically write one story with many different themes. But kind of like a rope, picture like a rope with many threads that tie and weave together. There are many threads and themes and types of genre in the Bible, but they all help to tell the one story that God has come into the world, stayed committed to his creation after they fell away from him to end the banishment that we had from our Creator. Banishment is the critical problem of the Scriptures sin, our rebellion against God, our self deification, our wandering from him. We're going to read about that here today, too. It's one of the common words the Bible gives to our state before a holy God is that we have wandered where he is not. God's over here and we are here. It's a huge, huge problem. There's a fixed chasm in between of sin that has to be remedied and undone for us to get back. And so we talk about the kingdom of God here and Jesus talks a lot about that, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. It's basically an idiom for that, that God is setting up a kingdom in the world where he is king and his people are beneficiaries of that kingdom. And all. All the things that good kingdoms provide, like just general provisions of food and protection from evil and enemies and a walled city where we are where the king is, that's basically in a spiritual sense what God is doing in the world. He's proclaiming he is here to save us from sin and death and he's bringing people back from not believing that, not understanding it, to a place of trust and dependence and hiding beneath the shelter of his wings, as one of the Psalms talks about in the Old Testament. So, We're still before, the culmination of all of this is the cross, when God dies for us on a cross in a substitutionary kind of way, dies for our sins, uh, but we are building towards that. We're in the earlier sections, actually the middle sections now, in the book of Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be in this uh, series through Christmas time this year, and the summertime we're going to build towards the climax, which is chapter 26 to 28, which is the story of his rejection, his betrayal even though innocent, but Christ planning the whole thing. He must suffer, he says. He must die. He must be rejected by people in our place because without that, there is no kingdom that benefits us. There's no salvation because sin is still a thing inside us. That, that issue of banishment is still present. And so he has to go through all of this and raise again, overwhelmed death like we sang about before, conquered the grave. All those things have to be addressed by God, spoken into, rebuked, ended, dissolved, conquered by him before we can have any hope of eternal life uh, whatsoever. So today is, we're in the middle sections here, Christ is beginning to get more explicit about his mission and who he is as the Son of God, not just a prophet, but the Son of God. That's really key, that came up in chapter 16 especially, but uh, more explicitly, but it's come up a lot outside of that as well. But today is sort of a part two of last week. If you were here, Jesus is still talking about the kingdom, talking about what it means to be great. In that kingdom because the disciples ask about this they at one point they pull him aside and they ask what does it mean to be great before God what does it mean to be who's who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom when you fully usher it in in the future disciples are starting to understand he's more than just a guy that he is the promised one of the Old Testament he is the guy that's going to end all wrongs he is the Christ he is the son of God but they're still not quite piecing together why it is he has to suffer and they're they're mixing that with just misguided understandings of greatness and all of this so it's all this is coming out in Matthew as we're talking. So and it, and a big part of it plays out when the disciples ask, what does it mean to be great? It's the same conversation as last week, so he's going to pick up where he left off, essentially. But Jesus' main answer last week, to catch you guys up to speed if you weren't here, is that you have to become like a child. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to humble yourself and become like a child. Not what they are expecting to hear. Put yourself in that situation and think, especially if you're a first century Jew, where children were very low on the social totem pole. They had no status whatsoever. They were the lowest. They were weak and simple and poor. And we read last week from a commentator on this passage, they were unable to make money or provide for, for anybody or do any kind of good for society whatsoever. And so they were, they were actually looked down upon. Unlike today's culture, I think we look at them a little bit higher. But, but Jesus says childlike. And it would have been like asking the Minnesota Twins, uh, who's the greatest Minnesota Twin? Asking the whole team here. They're standing here and then having them all speak up at once, oh, it's obvious, it's the bat boy. The bat boy is the most important person on this team, by far the greatest person. You'd be like, well, come on, did you misunderstand the question? I meant the greatest. So it's got to be one of you know these two guys over here. But no, it's the bat boy. That would have given me a sense of what they would have felt. Like, are you kidding? That's completely upside down. It's a complete 180 of what I thought you were going to say when we asked about what it means to be great. Strength, wisdom, stature. These are the things that God must want, right? No, it's not. It's the opposite. He wants humility, He wants brokenness. He wants us to understand and perceive ourselves as weak and simple and poor and blind and pitiable and incapable, like children of the first century. If we don't understand it that ourselves that way before God, we'll never reach out for Him and ask for help. So he's revealing himself in these ways, and us, in our stature, in our nature as well before our holy God, so in a loving manner so that we'll go to the doctor, so that we'll reach out for deliverance and be saved. So he talked about that, then he switched gears, kind of widened out a bit, talked about sin, how big of an ugly deal it is, how it runs rampant in the world, tempting people, how it threatens people. But remember, he threatens back as a protective, loving husband. He speaks against sin as well and all those who would threaten his people too. Then he also talked about how it needs to be addressed. And in context, sin is very widely defined. But in context, he's talking about arrogance and pride, thinking too highly of ourselves. So when he talked about gouging out eyes metaphorically and cutting off hands, this is a a characteristic of saved people as they're entering the kingdom of God. One simple or first look at this is to look at it in, in the way of pride. And to say, it's about gouging out pride by believing that Jesus is everything and we are nothing. By living childlike. Not childish, but childlike in humility before God and other people. And praising him for being our all in all. So that was last week, a bit of a part one. It's the same conversation though. So today, Jesus will talk again about little ones. And so last week it was childlike sinners before a holy God. And this week it's little ones, but it's the same idea. Little ones are childlike people, humble people, his people, who are saved by grace, not by what they do before him. And that's going to tie into what he says here. Different angle, but uh, same, same conversation. But you'll see some of these themes spill into today as well. All right, so let's read it to begin. Only uh, four verses today, Matthew eighteen ten 10 uh, to 14. Verse 10. All right, fantastic passage. We learned so much about God and ourselves here, pulling from last week. And we'll walk through this basically from the front portion here to the end, from verse by verse. But I do want to mention here to begin, though, as well, what I just talked about, that little ones, in one sense, can refer to all Christians, like we talked about last week, being a childlike individual before God. So, in one sense, we are all, like, to use from some of the language this week, like this one wandering sheep away from God, Christian or not. That's just the other sense to it. in one sense, little ones can refer especially to weak or wandering Christians that are not like other Christians that don't happen to be in that same spiritual state of wandering, or another layer to this is actually refer to non- Christians so wherever you guys are spiritually here, a Christian or not wandering Christian or very secure Christian in your faith, wherever you are, this speaks to us and there's an element here too where some of you, uh, some of all of us, if you 're a Christian. Today, we'll be counted among those 99 at some points in your life as well. You need to be looking at the one lost one like God as having the same approach to them. That's going to come up a little bit later, but we're going to first look at this angle of us all being, in some sense, a wandering person from God, whether we're not yet saved and God looks at us and counts us among his and goes after us, or we're a Christian that's forgetting the gospel and wandering from him into all kinds of sin and ungodliness and disbelief and distrust in our Savior he also is loving towards those types as well. So have that in mind, though. In one sense, all all Christians are little ones, but in another sense, there's a special uh, angle here. Both will come out today. All right, but here's the big question that we're going to answer today because Jesus starts this way. Do not despise one of these little ones. And the question is, why? Because he answers it. There's not a clear why here, but it's it's a supposed why. And then he goes and gives a couple of answers to it. The first is a little more cryptic. He says, do it because of the angels, essentially. It says there in verse 11, For I tell you, do not despise my little ones, for because I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So somewhat cryptic, right? Sometimes it's a verse here that people latch on to for guarding angel theology, the the idea that God assigns one angel per person uh, to guard them and protect them and to be an extension of his care uh, throughout life. And the reality is the Bible does not speak a lot about that, so we don't know if that's the case or not. It's possible, that's what this is saying, but it's it's more likely from what the rest of the Bible has to say about angelic involvement in the world with the people of God. This is just a broad statement of God caring for his people, a lot of times via the means of angels. So that's at least, broadly speaking, what we have to conclude here from this passage and the rest of the Bible, that God watches over the affairs of all people, particularly his people, the church. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Don't despise little ones because God does not despise them through the means of his angels watching over them. You guys see that? A little bit more of a heavenly, almost inaccessible. What I love about this passage, actually, is we start really big and almost, what does that mean? Inaccessible with angelic involvement here, and it can't quite pin down that exact, there's some mystery to it. That's the big big, uh, picture approach. But then, after this, he speaks in a parable form, and it gets much more accessible and easy to understand, much more ground level. But he's basically saying the same thing. Don't despise little ones because God doesn't. He unpacks that here in this uh, short uh, tidbit of teaching, this parable. So he starts in verse 12. What do you think? And I like that because the spirit of that is basically saying this should be reasonable to you. Think about this. What do you think if you're in this situation? Or this is classic Jesus to say, or the... The rest of the Bible does this as well. God poses this in a number of books in this capacity, It's argument. If this is true in the world, in your life, how much more true is it with God? If you see goodness and grace and mercy demonstrated here in these different social platforms or experiences or whatever, how much more true is it with God? I think that's going on here as well because he teaches about shepherds, which is a very common occupation in the first century, and says, think about it. What? What would you say to this if you were posed with this situation? So he likens it then to a man, a shepherd, who has a hundred sheep, likens God to a man who has a hundred sheep and is not content that only 99% of those sheep are safe. One is lost. So Jesus, again, he reposes this in a question by essentially saying, wouldn't you think he would go after the one? Do you know any good shepherds? Wouldn't you think this is an appropriate thing for the shepherd to do? So now for all of you who don't uh, shepherd for a living, like myself, uh, you could frame it in this way to understand, understand this. If a man has five kids and one of them is lost, won't he leave the four behind to go and find the one? What do you think, Jesus would say? Of course he will. Of course he'll do that, right? And won't he rejoice over the one found more than the four who are already safe? Of course he will. Of course he'll rejoice more over that. It doesn't mean he loves the one more. All of a sudden he's dropped love for the other four. It's just that he's found the one. I, mean, I think about my three kids. I think about losing our youngest in the mall. I mean, of course I'm going to leave the two with my wife or with a security guard. And at least I'm going to book it throughout the mall and find our kid. Because we care. Because we love. Of course we're going to do that. And of course we're going to rejoice more over the one we found temporarily than we are the other two. Because we're just so happy that we found the one and relieved. Right? Jesus is saying this is extremely reasonable. And it's it's wrong to conclude otherwise. We see this happen in the world. And he's saying he's, he's projecting this onto what our picture of God should be as well. Because he's a perfect father. He's a perfect shepherd. There might be shepherds that don't do this. But there are many. But regardless of what you see in the world, Jesus is a better shepherd. A perfect shepherd. And this type of shepherd. This is what he does. So Jesus then is saying, not only is this what God is like, this is what the kingdom of God is like. We're seeing a picture of how salvation works here. Sinners and a holy God and how, how they come back together. The, the, the character or the person in the parable that initiates and the one that's passive is super important to identify. Because both parties here are not initiators. Both parties are not meeting in the middle. There is one initiator, there is one chaser, and there is one wanderer and one passive party. It's very important to get that. So in verse 14, he says, he makes this connection with the spiritual reality behind the teaching. He says, so it is with my father. So it is with God. God is loving. He's like this this shepherd in the parable. He's a pursuer. God is the one who chases us down and finds us. We are not the ones who finds him. God is like a perfect father. God's a shepherd. God cares, loves little ones like us and does not show any partiality. What I love too about verse 14 is you can see his desire in this. Not just that he's, he's doing this in a rote type way, but he desires it. He wills it in part then through the mention of his will, being that none will perish in verse, in verse 14. Listen to this. This is so good. Verse 14. So it is not the will of God who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Think about that. Is that a piece to your theology of God? When you think about God, do you think about that? When you think about the will of God for your life, does this verse come to mind? It's a great one to memorize, by the way. If if you ever, if you wrestle with the will of God, what he wants for for you on a daily basis, or what he's just wanting generally in the world, add this to your list to memorize so that you constantly, constantly think about it. This is what he's wanting for you guys and for me, right here as we sit. He's willing that you never perish. He's willing that you never fall away. He's willing that you stay his sheep. It's not saying he's willing that he, he's willing or wants you to really work hard at not perishing. That's one way to read it, but it's, that's not the way it's supposed to be read, not the way the rest of the Bible talks. It's that he's, he's willing, he's ensuring according to his own will and power and intention, that we stay in the faith. That's what he thinks of you. Isn't it amazing that God is like that? This is what God wants, and this is an extension, a picture of his will that we have to factor into our definition of it. God's ensuring it. So the loving control over our lives here, I think, is in picture. The loving control over our salvation he has here is meant to Uh, to, to remedy anxiety, to remedy lostness, to be a piece to our picture of who God is and what he's like. The Bible says elsewhere that he captivates hearts. He finds, he claims, he stamps and seals people for himself and renames them. He enfolds them on his watch into his own fold and home and kingdom. And one of my favorites in the Psalms is he hides people in himself. He hides them. If you're a Christian today, God has chased you down, He's softened your heart. He's found you. He's revealed himself to you. He's opened your mind and your eyes and your ears, and you believe because he's breathed on you. And then, even better, he holds you in himself and he hides you so that no one who wants your life, demon or man, for the rest of your life will ever be able to have you. Mind blown, you know? <laughs> it's like, man, best news ever, most free news ever, and it's a piece to our theology of God. It's one of the big things we have to understand in the white space a lot of times in the Bible is God wants us to know. He's not just saying this because he's asked a question. He's intentional. He wants us to know what he is like. And a big piece to that is his pursuing love and his grace, his claiming of us and his hiding of us in himself and his will that we never, ever, ever lose our salvation. So this is something then that we always, 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 wherever you guys are spiritually, Christian or not, in a struggling place of suffering, steeped in sin and wrestling with that or not. doesn't really matter. But especially if you're suffering, especially if you feel very distant from God, though you aren't, if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are exactly where he is. You are his temple. You are his church. You are where he resides. You're part of his body. But we can still feel that way all the time. So especially when we sin, especially when we suffer, especially when we feel distant from God, these are crucial things to think of. Uh, When we think about God, we have to think about him in this way. This way, that in this manner he loves. The Bible says God is love, that he loves us, but then it also says passages like this, in this manner he loves. So that we don't just have a statement of his love, we have a demonstration of what exactly that kind of love looks like and means. So I think what it does is it leads us to laugh and joy and freedom. If, If you really believe that this is what God thinks of you, if you really believe this is the nature of his love for you right now, It's going to drastically affect what you think of him, how you perceive salvation, and probably your attitude uh, as well in terms of increasing joy and freedom. In fact, I was thinking this week uh, that, and I don't think I've said this in seven years. No one caught me after first service on this, so I'm going to say it's true. I don't think I've said this in seven years uh, because I don't just want to be the guy that says this every week. It would mean nothing. Uh, But I really think that this is, at least it was impactful for me this past week, probably one of the most important verses and concepts you will ever read in the entire Bible. This picture of God right here, and particularly this concept of God being a chaser and a finder, and the flip side of that coin is we don't find and we don't chase. There's there's a book out when I was a freshman in college um, called God Chasers. Anybody remember this? You probably didn't. Oh, some of you did? Get out of town. Really? I'm seeing some head shakes. can't believe that. Terrible title. I can't remember anything about the book. I read at least part of it, uh, but terrible title, because we don't chase God. (laughs) Romans 3 says no one chases God, no one seeks for God, so therefore God chases us and finds us and seeks us and becomes one of us to walk among us, look at us, speak to us, love us, and die as one of us in our place. That's the whole Bible right there. But notice that we're the passive, we're the passive character in the story, not seeking for him. To pull from this language say the sheep that's not seeking the fold. And so one of the most important things we can know about God is, is just that, that he finds us. We do not find him. And I encourage you guys to fight against that because you will, like me, we will always default to the latter the on that. We will always think, whatever, wherever you are on this, we will always default. I think 10%. I have 10% to claim his credit here. God effectively dumped an un, unmade puzzle in front of me and he said, there's the clues in there about me. Put it together and hopefully you'll find out what it means to be saved and how you get in. It's not what the Bible says, but a lot of us act that way. There's just a broken puzzle, or that there's math to do, and there's this equation of salvation to figure out, but I've got to figure out the calculus. I've got to do it. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that he comes the full measure to us to reveal himself to us, period. He finds us. We don't find him. But here's where this gets not just joy-giving, but very practical, too, as we link other doctrines and other perspectives on God with us. A lot of times we don't realize that what we believe about one thing always affects what we believe about another thing theologically. Uh, Theologians call this the relationality of doctrines. When you believe about one thing, like your your view on sin, for example, greatly will affect what you believe what happened on the cross. It's the same here. What you believe about this this particular characteristic of God will affect how, how much you perceive him as a loving God or not. So linked with all of this stuff we're talking about is God's glory, his love, and our peace and joy in that love so contrastingly then if we believe we find god that we are effectively sheep who have found our way back to the fold on our own without god's help we not only misunderstand the bible and salvation but we actually rob god of getting glory we make him out to be to ourselves and others less loving than he actually is and then we rob on our side of things we rob ourselves of joy and peace in his glory and love, which is actually lessened in our theological system of understanding these things. So let's chart here. Understand it this way. On the left, if you believe God finds you, that he finds his people, that he is the shepherd of Matthew 18, he gets more glory. Because when you give more credit to God, he's thanked more. He's credited with more. And we are then, our role in the whole process is lessened. You can't increase both at the same time. You actually you de- decrease it. We're the passive entity here. But he gets more glory and thanks and praise. This is, just sounds like the Bible, right? To give God all the praise, all the thanks, all the credit, all the glory. These are prayers and doxologies in the Bible. And it's because of this that he finds us. And he gets all of it. We get none. And also, God is shown to be more loving. Contrastingly, on the right side, if we think we find God, God is shown to be less loving. It's just not as loving for a parent to sit on the bench at the mall when their kid is lost, their one-year-old wandering around, hoping that the security guard finds them, or worse, that the one-year-old going to smell their way back to me or something. You know, It's not loving. It's not as loving, right? See, we're, we're making God less loving by saying we had something to do with our salvation. But the Bible says he is love. The Bible says he's the most loving being in the universe. Par excellence. The Christian God is the God of love over and against all other gods of the world that the Bible says are so-called gods, not really gods because there's only one God. But praise be to God, this is what he's like. Praise be to God, this is how glorious and loving he is. This is the, this is the chasing God, the loving God, the initiating God that, that we serve. So if you're wrestling then with, there's a lot of things we could say here in terms of, this is just a very crude, very simple chart that outlines the, the relationship the Bible makes between God getting big and us getting small, God getting glory and us being happy in that, us getting joy when we're not about ourselves. I mean, think about the last time was when you were full of yourself and you were extremely happy at the same time. Got nothing. <laughs> you know. It's never the case. When are you really, really fulfilled and happy when you're completely self-absorbed at the same time? There's a reason for that because you weren't made to be that. You were made to be a creature, not the creator. But in our sin, we became self deifying creatures. We put ourselves in the middle and took God out of it. And that's exactly what Jesus is reversing here by being the sole initiator of our salvation, so that no one can stand before him saying, I've found this, I've earned this, I've done the math, I've figured it out, I've put together the puzzle, I've grabbed the carrot that was dangled in front of me. No one can boast. Because God has come the full measure to us, wrapped us up in his arms and pulled us back into the fold. He is the shepherd. He's the one who does the finding. So if you're wrestling with finding joy in Christ then, or or if you ever hear us talk about the love of God, for example, as well, and that's very abstract to you, or you look around and think, the love of God seems to really be impacting so-and-so that I'm sitting next to or my neighbor, my community group leader more than I am, and you wonder about that, or if you're just full, generally speaking, of spiritual unrest. There might be a number of reasons for that. One of the big reasons might be, maybe even likely might be, because you're still living under the delusion that you found God a few years ago. What the Bible says here, what God says to us through Matthew 18, is he says, I'm freeing you from that hellish doctrine. I'm freeing you from it by saying, no, you didn't. I found you. I love you more than you thought I did. You thought I was a passive God sitting back in the fold waiting for you, but no, I came out and found you because I love you. I've wrapped you up in my arms. I've died for your sins. I've undone death forever and ever and ever. This is what this is symbolizing and pointing to. You see how much more loving, much more active, much more of a God coming to earth, walking among us and dying as one of us that that this is. But this is this is what the Bible teaches and it's true for me experientially as well you know when I get bigger in my own eyes I get less joyful and more anxious and more depressed and just sad but when God gets bigger, I get more released and happier and just content that this God actually exists and this is actually what he thinks of me it's not going to make all your problems go away but it's going to be that rock the Bible says you can withstand the storms of just hellish experience that we all go through at various points in our life, and some of you are today. This is the rock, the unchanging rock that is our foundation for weathering it. This is what he is like. And no other God is like this, right? No other God of the world is like There's no Matthew 18, 10 to 14 in any other holy book ever written by man, and ever, that ever was either, so, so present day and also past. You never have it. This is completely unique. The Christian God is completely unprecedented and unique here. If, there's a version of Matthew 18, 10 to 14 in different holy books. It would basically be like a man had 99 sheep and one was lost, but he waited patiently back in the fold, hoping that that one would find his way back. That's religion. That's passive God. That's works-based mentality. That's saying the sheep, if he's smart enough, if he's wise enough, if he works hard enough to find his way back to the fold, he will get there. If he's lucky, but if not, he won't be saved in the fold of God forever and ever and ever. You see how this is not rocket science and very simple, but something you have to think a lot about? This is basically saying God saves us by grace, not by what we do, which no other God says, no other book says, no other worldview says, no other religion says. God comes to us. We do not, definitely do not go to him, praise God. So this is what he's saying to us. He's saying, child, Though you were lost in your sin, far from me, I found you, and I rejoiced over you. Look at Zechariah 3.17 says, and also Isaiah 62, a couple of Old Testament prophet passages that speak about God's love for his people. First, Zechariah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Even as I read that, I'm sure there are some of you thinking, I just don't believe that's true. I don't believe that God loves me, and to the point where he sings over me and rejoices over me, I've done way too much crap in my life to to deserve that. That's the beauty of it. You don't deserve it, but it's given as a free gift anyway because you're you're like a child to him. And parents don't love children conditionally. They love them unconditionally. And their guiding love is what establishes the relationship anyway. Not what you do. It's his love given to you. So my, my encouragement, and this is the encouragement to you in Zechariah 3, believe this about God. If you don't believe this, change your way of thinking. Lay down the way you used to think about God and take up this one today. Some of you might actually acknowledge this factually, but you, don't really, you haven't really received this or absorbed this into your life. Do it. It will change your life. Isaiah 62, 5b, it's actually the verse that Aletha and I use in our wedding. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Praise God. Again, different metaphor, but he's saying, you ever been to a wedding where you've seen a bridegroom standing right down here, wherever, and just beaming at his bride? That's God. That's what he thinks of you. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. We are wedded to him. And he is that he is that loving loving husband who would do anything and does everything, lays down his life even for his bride. That's what God is like. So all of this then is this loud, like I said before, this declaration of God that he saves us by his grace and what he does in the world, not by our religious works and morality. If this were about works, again, this parable in Matthew 18 would be a survival of the fittest parable, about the sheep finding their way back to the fold themselves, but God as Matthew 18 says and many other passages in the Bible, is a God of the unfit sinner, the wounded sheep. And the ultimate way, and this is where all this is heading, the ultimate way he brings us in is when he dies for you on a cross, and he dies for me. John 10:11 is, is great for this because it's the same metaphor, but different passage. It gets more clear on what it actually means that Jesus is a good shepherd, how he actually takes care of the sheep. John 10:11 says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus speaking, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The stronger party for the weaker party, right? In one sense, you've got to look at that and say, what kind of shepherd dies for his sheep? Like, is he crazy? Well, yeah, kind of. This is God's crazy, amazing love for you. This is what he got. He's the stronger party, dying for the weaker, wandering, unwise, simple, childlike, pitiable, blind, not even looking for the fold, sinners like us. Praise God. So it has to be all about him has to be about the shepherd, because sheep are unwise and always wandering. So, But this is where all this is headed. The cross is the trajectory of Matthew 18. Without, without John 10, 11, and without Jesus eventually going to a cross to die for our sins, Matthew 18 means absolutely nothing. If you don't have the cross, there is no way that God goes out to bring people back to himself. There is no collection of wandering sheep. So we have to view Matthew 18, rather, as a shadow. It's a it's shadow that the cross casts backwards into history that Jesus acknowledges as as a type or a picture or foreshadowing of a later event. This is where we're headed here. Matthew 18 is a glimpse of love, but the cross is the reality of love. Jesus dies for your sins and shows you love in that. That's what the Bible says. Demonstrates it here in a parable, but ultimately the reality is shown at the cross. So two things then for, uh, for takeaways. The one is what we've been talking about all morning so far, and the, the other one is a, a physical response or reflection on this I'll get to in a minute. But the first thing is just believe that God is like this. Believe it. The Bible says this is one way to understand what God has done for you on the cross. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible is full of these declarations, but also word pictures of what happens on the cross, so that we have so many things to tap into to say, you know, yesterday this was effectual for me and most helpful, but today it's this word picture. Yesterday it was the statement God has loved, the statement God has loved me on the cross by dying for my sins. Today it was this word picture of him being kind of like a really good shepherd who lays his life down for a sheep and who goes out and finds lost sinners, doesn't just hope they come back on their own will and accord. See how both play off each other? and We need both. God knows that. We, he knows we, we're human beings that need both this prepositional statement of fact and also story and picture and poetry and, and, and foreshadowing. We need that as well. We're, we're made to learn from both. So that's what the Bible is saying today. This is what God has done for the cross. Receive it. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Thank him for coming to find you. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer in your life, that exact prayer, God, thank you for coming to find me, because you've never really fully believed it. You believe he kind of did, but it was actually partly you two that met him in the middle, and it's preventing you. Your your, your misguided understanding of salvation in the Bible has prevented you from falling on your knees and finding happiness in that prayer. God, thank you for loving me and finding me. So, Don't let your pride prevent you from praying that. Pray that exact prayer this week. Wherever you are spiritually, trust afresh in him for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't care where you were yesterday spiritually. Right now, this is what the Bible talks to Christians a lot. It doesn't matter about your, forget about your conversion. Yes, that's significant in one sense. There's places to remember that. But what about right now? What are you doing with Jesus Christ? Are you in the faith? Is this the type of God you're believing in? Or just a pale shadow? So do that first. Believe that God is like this. The second thing is a, a reflected idea of reflecting the God who is like this, and that is live the miracle, or embody this gospel. So going back to what I was saying uh, to begin, in one sense, we're all the one lost sheep, but in another sense, many of us are like the one of the 99 sheep at many times in our life, or even as one who resembles the shepherd. So you've got to see both. If you're a Christian, especially here today, if you're not, you're like the one sheep alone, If you're a Christian, you're also like the one sheep, remember that. But you're also at times like the 99 or called to resemble this shepherd as well. James 2, 1 to 5 is really helpful here. This is another book of the New Testament. And James says to the church here in verses 1 and 5, My brothers, church, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So see his flow of argument here. He's saying, show no partiality. Don't be be partial with people, church. Why? Because God is like that and he lives in you. God is not partial. If God was a partial God, there would be no one saved because all of us are the weaker sheep who have wandered. So if God was partial and said, I'm just saving the strong sheep, Zero people are saved forever. Praise God he's not partial, right? Or we're toast. So he's saying, God is like this. This is the, this is the ground or the reason why we are to do this in the church. Because, not because we're saved by being really good at not being non-partial, but because we're saved in order to do it, to declare these things and also to demonstrate them with our actions. So to look out then for the weaker or the newcomer or the visitor, the less mature, the physically handicapped, whatever it is, is a distinctly Christian way to live because again, at the core of our faith is a God who looked out for us while wandering from his fold and who showed us again, praise be to God, no partiality. He saved us by grace. So again, the Bible says here then two things. It says in James 2, show no partiality to other people and in Matthew 18, today's passage, do not despise little ones. It's the same teaching from two different angles. Don't despise little ones and show no partiality. And when we do that again we reflect this grace gospel that we believe in. And it can take shape differently in our lives as well. Think about it in different spheres. So when you when you go forth and think about this yourself this week or with your spouse or your friends or community group whatever it is, great practical question to think about as we as we flow from this initial belief in a God who's like it, how can we reflect this in a worldly sphere? Do I show no partiality in public? And in general is there a concern for the weaker and the outcast as a Christian? Or in the community group or social sphere, the smaller sphere here at Hiawatha, or even as we gather here in large circles, do I show no partiality when I gather formally to remember the gospel of Christ and sing the gospel and eat the gospel in remembrance of his death and pray the gospel? As, we're, as I'm doing that, am I showing partiality in any way in uh, our gatherings? And actually in James, James too, the, the immediate context has to do with Christians gathering like this to worship and the best seats in the house or the synagogue or wherever it was, the marketplace, wherever they were gathering, were, were given to the rich and the most prominent Christians among them. And the, and the poorest were, had to sit in the undesirable seats. I mean, today people like sitting back, so it's like flip that around or something, I don't know. But uh, that day it was this, these front seats that were preferred. And they were given to the rich, prominent, strong people. And James speaks into that and says, is God like that? Did God do that to you? When God died for your sins on the cross and chased you down based on no merit of your own, was he showing partiality to you? What would happen here? If if this meeting was a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would happen if we acknowledged that on the one hand and wanted to demonstrate that physically with those who are more little or weaker or newer or in some way not one of the main core of the stronger core of, of the church? What would that look like? You could also ask this, are these gatherings more about you or other people? It should always be the latter. Are you constantly looking out for the visitor, the one sitting alone, the unchurched, the physically weaker? Are you constantly, when you walk in, looking around for those types? That would be to not show partiality. Obviously, there's a the time to talk to anybody. Talk to your friends. It's great. But is there this, is there this bent towards looking out for a way to serve? a way to be the least, a way to get under people and to make them more important than you are, and to welcome people in the spirit of the gospel. So huge ramifications for when we gather. It's actually the contextual issue in James 2, but also outside our larger gatherings and smaller ones in that worldly sphere as well. It is, and remember, if we don't do this, there's this great disconnect between the God we preach who is non-partial, saves us by grace, wipes our sin away, looks out for the weaker people like us, Saves us, disconnect between that and the way that we act as his vessel and his body on earth. So that's what I love about James here, and I'll close with this. I think one of the encouragements for uh, that, it's subtle, it's suggested in Matthew 18, more clear in James, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what the shepherd does here. But the call is to declare, not just to declare that but to show it off with your actions. Do both. Tell someone this week about the Jesus of Matthew 18. Who can you tell this week? That's what Christianity is, is a heralding of the God who is like this and who's done this for them, who chases them down in love and saves them by his loving grace. And then also, think about a way you can demonstrate this as well. Someone weaker, more young in the faith, uh, physically weaker, spiritually weaker, someone alone, someone who's new, and serve them, love them. Uh, make them feel very comfortable, be hospitable to them. It is one of the distinctly Christian things you can do this week. Believe in the gospel and reflect that God by being non-partial with uh, with people around you. So with that, let me thank God afresh here, and we'll pray for his help uh, in this last issue especially. God, thank you for uh, today the gospel of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18 the gospel according to Matthew 18 and the gospel according to James 2. God, I pray for your help. Uh, We thank you, first of all, that this is what you are like. You don't just tell us you are loving. You show us in what manner and the extent to which your love goes to save your people. God, we confess it's way, way, way bigger than we ever dared dream. Praise God it's the case. God, thank you that you save us to the uttermost by your will, by your accord, by your strength, by your spirit. And it's not by our will or strength, but it's completely based on what you've done in the world. Thank you for raising us from the dead, for wooing our hearts, for coming the full measure to us to show us that you are not just a man, but God, who's going to go forth and die in a substitutionary kind of way for us on a bloody cross among criminals. To take away all of our sin forever to remove death, to overwhelm it three days later and walk away from that tomb victorious and to welcome us into that experience now spiritually and someday later physically. Amazing grace, God. Help us us to respond, God, humbled, uh, maybe for the first time realizing how little we have to do with our salvation, feeling a sense of humility and even some offense by that because we so much want to worship ourselves. We so much want to have control of ourselves. We so much want to self-deify, even just a little bit. We so much want that. Forgive us for that. Help us to repent and to crucify that sin to the cross. There's no place, God, in our hearts. Thank you for dying for that sin of self-deification, that, that sin of self-worship. God, help us to keep in step with that reality, that grace, that promise that it's you and not us, that you have to increase and we have to decrease. Get more glory, be shown more loving, and increase our joy and peace when we see how much it is that you find us and we don't find you, God. Pray this all in Christ's name and for the glory of God. Thank you again for the amazing God you are and you reveal that to us in your words. We don't have to guess at it or poke around in the darkness to figure out who exactly you are and what exactly you did for us on the cross. It is crystal clear. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.